Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. America's top general just painted a rather scary picture. The lead starts right now. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff says if Russia invades Ukraine, it will be, quote, horrific. The House Foreign Affairs Committee chairman is in Kiev, Ukraine, and joins us after his meeting with Ukraine's president. Plus, a 22-year-old widow, distraught as she says goodbye to her husband, a New York City cop killed in the line of duty. Today I'm still in this nightmare that I wish I never had. Full of rage and anger, hurt and sad, torn. That woman is pointing the finger of blame at one person who was at today's funeral. Then, it's a miracle no one was seriously hurt. Questions and alarm today about what caused a major bridge to collapse in the city of Bridges. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start with our politics lead today. Moments ago, President Biden wrapped up a speech in Pittsburgh promoting what he sees as his administration's major accomplishments, such as the strength of the nation's economic growth, his bipartisan infrastructure deal. But a crisis overseas is consuming a great deal of the president's attention. The Biden administration insisting a Ukraine invasion by Russia is imminent, warning today that an invasion would be horrific. The U.S. ambassador to Russia, John Sullivan, today calling Moscow's troop buildup along Ukraine's border extraordinary, adding that this gives Vladimir Putin the ability to invade with no notice. Democratic Congressman Gregory Meeks is in Ukraine right now, leading a congressional delegation with the House Foreign Affairs Committee that he chairs, and he will join me in a moment in his first TV interview since his meeting today with the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. But first, CNN's Caitlin Collins will tell us about the tensions on the world stage. President Biden driving home his infrastructure message in Pittsburgh with an extraordinary backdrop. It's incredible. Hours before Biden arrived, at least 10 people were injured when a 52-year-old bridge suddenly collapsed, sending cars plunging, but fortunately causing no deaths. It was just a very loud, like a jet engine. Uh, and you can see, the gas was rushing uh, you see it coming out that on the other side of the concrete there. With year two of his presidency underway, President Biden is pledging to fix dilapidated bridges nationwide. They're going to fix them all. Not a joke. This is going to be a gigantic change. But tensions building overseas are threatening to overshadow his efforts. I don't think this is about trusting Putin. This is about our allies trusting us. Top brass at the Pentagon warning about the horrific outcome if Russian President Putin invades Ukraine. The Russian Federation has amassed upwards at this time of over 100,000 ground forces, air forces, naval forces, special forces, cyber, electronic warfare, command and control, logistics, engineers, and other capabilities along the Ukraine border. But the Ukrainian president, who spent over an hour on the phone with Biden yesterday, is pumping the brakes on the talk of war. I'm the president of Ukraine. I'm based here. And I think I know the details deeper than any other president. 
While the Ukrainian leader noted that Russia has used military buildups as a scare tactic in the past, the Pentagon says this is different. This is larger in scale and scope uh, and the massing of forces than anything we have seen um, uh, in recent memory. And I think you'd have to go back quite a while into the Cold War days to see something of this magnitude. Still, officials are hoping for a diplomatic path ahead. Conflict is not inevitable. And Jake, they were hopeful about diplomacy being the path forward here, but you heard those officials at the Pentagon today also being realistic about what's happening on the ground in Ukraine and talking about the weather conditions changing as it gets colder, colder the waters freeze. It's a lot easier for those tanks to move in potentially into Ukraine. And so right now you heard Defense Secretary Austin say that those 8,500 troops that President Biden has put on high alert to potentially move them into Eastern Europe if needed. He said so far they have not moved. But, of course, they are on high alert and ready to do so if needed. All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House, thanks so much. Joining me now, House Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman Gregory Meeks of New York, who's leading a congressional delegation in Ukraine and joins us from Kiev. Mr. Chairman, you just met with the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky. What was uh, the main message you think he's trying to convey right now? Well, that we're all together. I think that... uh, he is conveying the fact that the, the unity that has developed between the United States and, quite frankly, our European Union friends and uh, those that are part of NATO, that we've got to all be together to stop the aggression of uh, uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, and he's talking in a sense of uh, being very appreciative, actually, of the $850 million that the United States has already given to Uh, Ukraine and other things and other needs uh, that they have as we make sure that we have a plan A and a plan B uh, because we don't know what Putin is going to do. We don't know if Putin knows what he's going to do. In a press conference uh, not long ago, President Zelensky called it a mistake for the U.S. to pull out non-essential staff from the embassies in Ukraine. He compared them to ship captains, saying they should be the last to leave the ship. Um, What do you make uh, of that and what do you make of him downplaying the imminence of an invasion by Russia? Well, what we told him, uh, and I think that he understood that the embassy is still fully employed. You know, that the members of the embassy are there. Their family members and dependents are the ones that are leaving. Uh, But the embassy is fully, is full of individuals uh, that are there preparing and working on an everyday basis. Uh, I know what he's concerned about is to make sure that there is no sense of panic and or uh, individuals, uh, you know, think that they cannot go about their lives here in the Ukraine. Now, that would be a victory for Putin because it would slow and stop their economy. And I can tell you from being in Ukraine for for the days that I've been here, they are going about their daily lives. Their economy is still moving forward. But they also know that there may come a time, if Putin crosses that line, that they will have to stand up and defend their country. And I walk, when I leave here, will leave with the confidence that they will just do that. Because the Ukrainian people that I've spoken with, and we spoke to some here that comes from different parts of the country, they are resolved to protect their democracy. Today, the Pentagon laid out some of the resources Russia has at the border. Take a listen to General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. With 100,000 troops and uh, you've got uh, combined arms formations, ground maneuver, artillery, 
rockets, you got air and all the other piece parts that go with it, uh, there's a potential that they could launch uh, on very, very little uh, warning. That's possible. Yet Putin's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, said today that if it's up to Russia, quote, there will be no war. Do you believe Lavrov? No, we can't sit back and just believe him. You know, we've got, as the president has said uh, for weeks now, for a month now, for a month now, there is a distinct possibility of Russia attacking sometime in February. So we don't want him to attack. attack. We've put up things to make sure that, that it, it, it pulls him, pushes him away from attacking. But should he attack, we have to be ready. Because we see where the aggression has come in the region. It's not NATO. It's not uh, those individuals in the Ukraine. It's not uh, the EU. The aggressors is coming from Russia. Right. So you've got to prepare. If they move those tanks away, it's a different story. But as long as those tanks there, we have to be prepared to deal with them, or the Ukrainians will be prepared to deal with them, I should say. You were in Congress, uh, you alluded just a second ago to 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea from Ukraine. You were in Congress when that happened, also uh, when Putin annexed part of Georgia uh, during the George W. Bush years. Um, Both Bush and Obama responded with sanctions on Russia, sanctions that don't seem to have stopped Putin's ambitions at all. Um, Are you confident that the sanctions that President Biden is threatening would actually work? Yeah, we're talking about crippling sanctions. And what the key here is, uh, Jake, is not just the United States. That's why we've got to keep the unity among all of our allies in the area. So what, what we did on this trip, we stopped in Brussels first because I wanted to hear from the members of NATO, where they were, where they stood. I wanted to hear from the members of the EU, where they stood. And I also wanted to hear from my European allies, some from the Baltics, who are very close to the Russian border. I wanted to hear them. It's the division that we have between what we call the core four, which is Germany and France as the lead, as well as what we call the B9. And what I'm finding is, and here's where I think President Biden is doing a great job, is bringing them all together, listening to them. You know, because basically what they were saying is it's good that America is back at the table and we're working together and listening to each and all of them so that we can stay together. And then if, in fact, sanctions have to be uh, implemented, it will be done collectively and severely like never before because of the multilateralism of the sanctions. House Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman, Democratic Congressman Gregory Meeks coming to us from Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you so much, sir. From Maryland to Maine, a blizzard is setting up to hit the northeastern United States this weekend. Some areas could see up to three feet of snow. Then, that escalated quickly. In court, former porn star Stormy Daniels cross-examined by Michael Avenatti, her former lawyer, who she says stole from her. In our health lead, more than 2,200 Americans are dying every day from COVID, according to Johns Hopkins University. But daily cases and hospitalizations of Americans are dropping, which is a shot of hope, echoed by Dr. Anthony Fauci. 
I'm cautiously optimistic that things are going in the right direction. Here's another possible shot of hope. After a stagnant spell, vaccinations seem to be ticking back up. Now 77% of Americans have at least one dose. But, as CNN's Alexandra Field reports for us now, an Omicron spin-off variant is catching the eye of scientists. My message would be just hang in there. Easier said than done for many Americans, but as exhaustion with the pandemic grows, so do signs of hope. Omicron cases coming down in much of the country, and promisingly, new data shows vaccination numbers are going up a bit during the Omicron surge. A new Kaiser Family Foundation study finds 77% of Americans have received at least one dose of a COVID vaccine, compared to 73% in November, when vaccination rates had stagnated. And more proof of how well vaccines work. According to the CDC, unvaccinated seniors were 52 times more likely to be hospitalized with COVID in December than seniors who were fully vaccinated and boosted. Let's keep working on improving both therapeutics and vaccines and make sure there's plenty of them. So whenever the next variant hits, we're going to be ready. We won't have to shut down schools. We won't have to shut down our lives. We'll manage our way through it. There is now a sub-variant of Omicron, but public health officials say it's not yet cause for alarm. We're keeping a very close eye on it. Looks a bit more transmissible, but not necessarily more severe. Sadly, some 2,200 Americans are still losing their lives to COVID daily. Thankfully, hospitalizations are lower than they were a week ago. But it remains an isolating disease. To counter that pain, an Oklahoma lawmaker is calling for a new law to ensure COVID patients can receive visits from loved ones, saying many Oklahomans have had to endure the horrible heartbreak of not being with a loved one while they were hospitalized with COVID-19. This adds stress and trauma onto an already fraught situation. The stresses of the pandemic not behind us yet. Children under five still aren't eligible for vaccines, and COVID cases among children are hitting new highs. The rate of infection nearly five times higher than at the peak of the surge last winter. But in another sign of hope, two new Israeli studies show children who live in vaccinated households have significantly higher protection. And even so, more than 2 million children have been infected with COVID just this month, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is saying that schools still should stay open for in-person learning. But they are also saying that students and staff should continue to wear masks. Jake? Alexander Field, thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, if we look at the Delta wave from last summer and early fall, cases started coming down in early September with deaths then following with a downward trend in late September. So now that cases from the Omicron surge are clearly plummeting, cases, does that mean we should expect deaths to finally start decreasing in maybe two weeks? Yeah, I think two to, two to three weeks. I mean, if you look sort of, uh, you know, previous waves, if there's been that sort of lag period, uh, and you're already seeing that in some places, like some of the earliest hit places, for example, in New York, you are starting to see deaths come down in addition to cases and hospitalizations. So that's potentially good news. And that is sort of, you know, the expectation. But let me just show you the, the CDC model on this. And, and this is these are the models, right? The, the ensemble models that we've been talking about for some time. But they basically, you know, show what's been happening with weekly death rates. This is and then you get into the red zone and it's a pretty wide sort of spectrum of, of possibilities there. But if you look at other countries, you look what's happening already in the United States, there's a there's a very significant chance that sort of mid third week of February so, sort of time frame that should be heading downward. 
Sanjay, talk to us about this new version of the Omicron variant. It's called BA2. It's been detected in Denmark. It seems to have caused a drawn-out Omicron spike there. But scientists here say it's not necessarily cause for alarm. Why, why not? Well, because the immunity that you get from vaccines and even to some extent from natural immunity still seems to be protective against this lineage. That's the bottom line. It's not different enough to, to be worried. You get worried when something is so different that you worry that your existing immunity may not have as much effect. I don't know if we have the graphic, but you can see that it, this particular lineage, BA2, as you mentioned, is there's actually three lineages. There's the original, which is the, the lighter gray, and then another lineage, which was BA11 and now BA2. It's a smaller percentage, but it's been found in a lot of countries, including the United States. But I think that the, the, the reason that people aren't too worried about it, unlike when Omicron first hit the scene and had 50 different mutations, this is pretty similar to what they already see circulating. So tell us about these two new studies that could help parents of children under five protect their unvaccinated kids. There still are not approved vaccinations for kids under five. Tell us more about these studies. Well, this really is a demonstration of herd immunity, the thing that we're talking about, but herd immunity sort of more on a household sort of scale. The question that these researchers had is, okay, there, there are people, in this case, children under five, who cannot get vaccinated. Uh, what is the best way to protect them? You obviously, you know, talk about all the other things that we've talked about, but if you have people in the household that are vaccinated, how much of a difference does it make? And what they found is that it still makes a considerable difference, even with Omicron, as contagious as it is. Back when they did this sort of study, and we can put it up with when they looked at Alpha, for example, you know, if you had both parents in the household vaccinated, you had protection of close to mid 70 percent. Omicron's more contagious, so it's no surprise that the effectiveness goes down. But one parent vaccinated gives you sort of 20 uh, percent roughly protection for your unvaccinated kid against infect, uh, them getting infected. And it goes up considerably with both parents. It's not perfect. But this is, the whole, again, the whole concept of herd immunity. And we know, again, they can't be vaccinated. And these kids can't wear, you know, like masks, like N95 masks. So this is another tool to try and protect them. Finally, I want you to talk about this dangerous lie that we, we, keep, being, uh, we keep hearing uh, about the COVID vaccine. We first heard it from uh, NBA legend John Stockton. And, and here's Wisconsin Republican Senator Ron Johnson. We've heard story after story. I mean, all these athletes dropping dead on the on the field but we're supposed to ignore that you know, nothing happening here nothing to see this is a travesty this is a scandal all these athletes dropping dead on the field supposedly due to the vaccine now cnn reached out to johnson's office which clarified that the senator didn't say the athletes dropped dead because of the covid vaccine uh, or from covid instead from possible adverse reactions to the covid vaccine uh, he's calling for transparency. Clear this up for us. Is there any evidence of people dropping dead from the COVID vaccine? And, and especially um, what we've heard from Stockton and Senator Johnson of all these athletes dropping dead from the COVID vaccine? No, there's not. And frankly, I've read his statements. I heard the comments and I'm still not sure how he reconciles what he said and then saying, well, I'm not saying what I just said, you know, unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of data now out there about these, so these 19 athletes who showed up on this one website, Gateway Pundit, initially, that seems to be where this started, and these 19 athletes. Uh, subsequently, people have gone and then checked into these 19 athletes. 
was there a problem? Was there a connection? And what they found, not in any case, was there a causal relationship between the vaccine and these people having some sort of, you know, heart arrhythmia or something like that. Denmark's Christian Eriksson, you know, it's interesting, he was one of the 19, he hadn't even vaccinated. And right away, there was all this, this concern that the vaccine had caused this sort of problem. It's, it's not connected. There is significant research that goes into this. They find things that are like one in a million, like they found with those blood clots. If this were a real problem, it would start to be uncovered. And we haven't heard that yet. No, we would report it. Why wouldn't we report it? Of course report we report it. We, yeah. we, I mean, and we want to, that's why we reported on the blood clot. It's important that people have all the information. That was with the Johnson & Johnson exactly. vaccine, I believe. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, uh, thank you uh, so much. Coming up next, strong words from the 22-year-old widow of one of the NYPD officers shot and killed last week. I know you were tired of these laws especially the ones from the new DA. I hope he's watching you speak through me right now. Topping our national lead, a hero's send-off today for fallen NYPD officer Jason Rivera. Thousands of police officers and others lined the streets of Manhattan today as his friends, family, and colleagues remembered the life of the 22-year-old policeman. He was one of two officers Gunned down while responding to a domestic dispute in Harlem a week ago. CNN's Shimon Prokopes joins us now live from New York. And Shimon, his widow, only 22 years old, gave an emotional, gut-wrenching eulogy today. Tell us more. Yeah, so gut-wrenching. Talking to the thousands of officers who were inside and lined up outside the cathedral, uh, she was quite emotional. One of the most emotional moments came when she was recounting an argument that she had with her husband on the day he was killed. Take a listen. We left your apartment, and because I didn't want to continue to argue, I ordered an Uber. You asked me if you are sure that you don't want me to take you home, it might be the last ride I give you. I said no, and that was probably the biggest mistake I ever made. And then, Jake, she also talked about the day he was killed and how she was texting him, trying to find out if he was okay, and then she was asked to come to the hospital, and she never got the chance to say goodbye, Jake. And, Shimon, she also uh, offered some rather pointed criticism of Manhattan's new district attorney. Tell us more. Yeah, and this has to do with some of the new policies that he put in place and, and sort of has been taking a lot of heat for, certainly from everyone here uh, in the city. She talked about how the system failed us, and then she addressed the new DA. Take a listen. Not safe anymore. Not even the members of the service. I know you were tired of these laws especially the ones from the new DA. I hope he's watching you speak through me right now. <laughs> and Jake, he was actually at the funeral, we're told, sitting among other law enforcement officials. It was one of the biggest applauses that she got, a standing ovation, but then also the people outside, the officers, and some of the people just from the community who were lined up here to watch this funeral all started applauding what she had said, Jake. 
All right, Simone Prokopis, thanks so much. Uh, NYPD officers Rivera and Mora are among the latest policemen killed in a wave of gun violence directed at law enforcement officers. According to the FBI, 2021 saw the highest number of officers intentionally killed in the line of duty in 20 years, with 55 officers killed from gunfire through November, up from 39 during that same period in both 2020 and 2019. Here to discuss San Francisco Police Chief William Scott. Chief Scott, thanks for joining us. You run one of the nation's largest police departments. Why do you think we're seeing this increase in gun violence against law enforcement officers? Well, Jake, thank you for having me. And first of all, my condolences to the NYPD, to Officer Rivera and Officer Morris family. I mean, this is just tragic and senseless. And it's really a continuation of, I think, what has transpired over the last couple of years. Um, we saw 2020 of historic violence against police officers, and, and we all get the landscape of 2020 after Mr. Floyd was, was murdered. However, we have to have some balance in this conversation. Um, these crimes against police officers are crimes against society, and I hope people see them as that. Um, it's really tough right now to be a police officer, and it's getting tougher by the day. And when we see what happened in New York and what we see when we see what happened in Houston and, and other parts of, of our country, it, it needs to end. And people need to be held accountable when they assault police officers and attack police officers. And, and that shouldn't even be an argument. Yeah. So I, I guess my question is, do you think it's because of the heated rhetoric in light uh, of and in, in the wake of the the murder of George Floyd um, by officer Chauvin former officer Chauvin or do you think it has to do with uh, less uh, fewer prosecutions uh, we've seen some some new prosecutors take control uh, ones with more lenient ideas in terms of crime and punishment um, as such as the Manhattan district attorney I mean what's the reason what's fueling it or is it all of it in, in your view well, I think it's all of it. I, look, I, I, when crimes are committed against police officers, whether it's a minor assault, in my opinion, there's no such thing as a minor assault against a police officer. When an officer's out there doing the job that the public is asking them to do, and they're doing it lawfully and doing it within the policies, and they're attacked, it, that's not a minor thing. And whether that attack results in no injury or a minor injury or death, like we, we saw with our fallen officers in New York, Nothing about attacking a police officer is minor. And when the evidence is there, it's my professional and personal opinion that there should be consequences when police officers are attacked. And I think when there are policies that broadly dismiss those cases, that's a real problem. It's a problem for our society and it's a problem for policing. So we've seen uh, the, the footage and, and read the reports uh, about the looting episodes in San Francisco. We've also seen a lot of uh, incidents uh, committed by homeless individuals in cities throughout the country. Um, what more needs to be done on a local, state, and national level to keep cities safe and law enforcement officers safe? Well, I, we have to have balance in the conversation. You know, it, many departments, including the San Francisco Police Department, have undergone a lot of work to put in reforms to make make our our profession better, to make our police departments better. And that needs to be done. On the other side of that conversation, we have to have balance with accountability with people who break the law and violate the law. And 
I totally understand prison reform. I totally understand a lot of, of what needs to happen there. But I, I think we overcorrected. I, I think we overcorrected with some of our initiatives in terms of people not being held accountable when they break the law. And we see people repeatedly go in and out of jail um, with little to no consequences. What's the disincentive? Um, that needs to get better. And I'm not saying that everybody needs to be locked up for life for minor crimes, but there does need to be some sensible accountability when people break the law. You know, we have a tremendous challenge in our state and this city with property crime. And, you know, to be quite honest with you, we devalue, you know, those types of crimes where people have sometimes no incentive not to do it. And that needs to change, Jake. It, it really does. And I think we need to have some balance in this conversation. I think a lot of people are fed up with the way things are. And we have to do better as a society. And there needs to be balance. San Francisco Police Chief William Scott, thank you so much for your time and your views, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you. After today's shocking bridge collapse in Pittsburgh, PA, we're learning of possible missed signs about the problems that that bridge had. That's next. In the national lead, nothing short of a miracle that everyone survived this. Three cars, a truck, a city bus caught in the sudden collapse of a bridge in Pittsburgh this morning. Only minor injuries, however, to report. Crews had to rappel down the ledge to rescue everyone. But now the question is, how on earth did this happen? CNN's Athena Jones is in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania with the investigation. The concrete there, this side, up by the crane. A stop President Biden did not plan to make a bridge that collapsed this morning. There are literally more bridges in Pittsburgh than any other city in the world. They're going to fix them all. The collapse happening just miles from where Biden was scheduled to tout his trillion-dollar infrastructure law. It sounded like a huge snowplow pushing along a raw tarmac surface with no snow. Several vehicles were on the bridge when it fell early Friday morning. Officials reported only 10 injuries. Three people were transported to the hospital. The good thing at this point is that there's no, fa no fatalities. Described by city officials as a vital artery for the city, the bridge's overall condition was rated poor in an inspection by the Pennsylvania Department of Transportation last September. But the city's fire chief says this collapse took everyone by surprise. We do have people go out and uh, inspect the bridges. If there was any warning or concern, we would have been notified and we would have made sure that we didn't use this route. And were it not for poor weather conditions, the story could have been very different. We were fortunate that that the, there was a public school delay and the traffic could have been much more more uh, pronounced. We're the city of bridges. I mean, and, and how many other you know, are, are out there? And you can just make out the scene behind me here. You can see the red uh, Port Authority bus still wedged against the railing. We're keeping our distance so we don't get in the way of first responders. Now, the investigation into the cause of this collapse is just getting underway with the National Transportation Safety Board having dispatched a GO team here. And the Allegheny County executive told me that fixing this bridge is a top priority. He said state engineers are estimating it'll take at least a year to get it back up and running. And that's a best case scenario. All right. Athena Jones in Pittsburgh, thanks so much. New blizzard warnings are out ahead of a dangerous winter storm that could become a so-called bomb cyclone. The Northeast and New England are bracing for heavy snow and hurricane-force winds, even possible coastal flooding, all possible in the next 24 hours. Let's bring in CNN's meteorologist Tom Sater. Tom, up until now, the system was a bit difficult to predict, I understand. 
Uh, very much so. You know, with modern technology and forecasts getting better every day, Jake, when you talk about a major storm five days out, everybody wants to know what's going to fall in my backyard. But the storm only really developed this morning. I mean, the energy for this ejected out of the Rockies just yesterday, and it's off the southeastern coast. Here's the problem. Until the form develops, you just don't know the path. If it takes that far left track, it's mainly rain on the coast. If it takes the far right into the ocean, you know, everything's pretty much just uh, on the coastline itself or offshore. But that sweet spot right in the middle, and now the models are in agreement, that's what we're going to have here. We could have a top 10 storm for Boston, maybe a top five. The snowfall in Pittsburgh is part of this. I mean, there's cold air that's moving in with that energy coming out of the Rockies. So there's been, you know, one to three inches in several states. But now that storm goes through that bombogenesis. The pressure drops rapidly in 24 hours, almost as low as a Category 2 hurricane as far as the pressure is concerned. But you've got snow all the way from lower Maryland, eastern shore, all the way up into the sweet spot, which is around Plymouth County, just south of Boston. We're talking about several inches of snow, in fact, several feet in and around the Boston area. Everybody, please stay home for the day tomorrow. Let the crews do their job. But we'll be watching this throughout the day tomorrow, Jake. All right, meteorologist Tom Sater, thanks so much. Speaking of stormy, as if porn star Stormy Daniels testifying about talking to dead people was not bizarre enough, a new twist late today in the case against Michael Avenatti. Stay with us. In our national lead, another bizarre day of testimony in the trial of attorney Michael Avenatti. Today, adult film actress and director Stephanie Clifford, also known as Stormy Daniels, spent four hours being cross-examined by her former attorney over allegations that Avenatti cheated her out of $300,000 from a book deal. Avenatti represented Daniels, of course, in her infamous hush money lawsuit against then-president Donald Trump, CNN's Kara Scannell. Joins us now live from New York, and Kara Avenatti picked up where he left off yesterday, trying to undermine his former client's credibility, questioning Daniels about her claims that she communicates with dead people. Uh, Tell us more. Yeah, Jake, he did. I mean, almost immediately off the bat, he began right along on that line of questioning. He asked her about several claims she's made about experiencing a poltergeist phenomena, seeing shadowy figures, hearing sounds in her home in New Orleans, and also her claims that she saw in her kitchen a woman who was crying, and then moments later, Daniel saying that she was then covered in blood. Daniels didn't deny any of that on the stand. She said that it was all part of a show that she was filming, Spooky Babes. Now, Avenatti also went to some of the substance. He tried to get the jury to think that Daniels was lying on the stand today because she had lied in 2018 when she issued that statement saying she didn't have any affair with Donald Trump and that she didn't receive any hush money payments. Well, Daniels explained that Michael Cohen, who was Donald Trump's then lawyer, who was also in court today as a spectator, had written that statement making that denial. She called that denial complete BS, but used the more explicit terms. Uh, She also said that her attorney at the time, not Avenatti, had told her that she had to sign it. Uh, Avenatti also, part of his defense is that he was entitled to money. That's why he claims he took the $300,000 from Daniels. Well, he showed the jury bank statements today that the prosecution had um, admitted as evidence where it shows that he made a $100,000 payment to buy two videos before her 60 minutes appearance. Now, Avenatti said he showed the line items there showing that one of the payments he said went to a person named Bubba the Love Sponge. Now, the jury didn't learn what was on those videos outside of their presence. The judge joked about it, saying that obviously people would want to know, but they wouldn't. Uh, The prosecution said that they will rest on Monday, Jake. 
Spooky Babes, another reference to Spooky Babes on the lead. Uh, appreciated, Kara. Uh, so if Avenani said that he is um, open to testifying in his own defense, but he's been acting as his own attorney, so how would that even work? Yeah, it's such an interesting and rare phenomena, and the judge had kind of grappled with how he would handle it. So he made a proposal today after Avenatti said he was strongly leaning in favor of testifying. The judge said that Avenatti could write out the questions he would ask himself, have either his you know, advisory attorneys, the ones that he had fired but who have been standing by, have one of them read the questions to him. He would sit in the witness box and answer that. Avenatti said that would be his preference. So wait and see on Monday what his ultimate decision is and if he will testify in his own defense. Jake. All right, Kara Scannell. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. He promised to give parents a voice in their kids' schooling, and now Virginia's new governor is under fire for a tip line for parents. That's ahead. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, profiting from policing a small town making big bucks from what drivers say are bogus police charges and racial profiling. And just as CNN arrives to cover the story, the top cop suddenly resigns. Plus, skeletons in the closet as President Biden kicks off his Supreme Court vetting process. We find out what happens behind the scenes in the search for the perfect high court pick. And leading this hour... It does feel different, America's top general warning today. What's happening along the Ukrainian-Russian border seems to him unprecedented, insisting he hasn't seen anything of this magnitude since the Cold War. As CNN's Barbara Starr reports for us now, Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman General Mark Milley painted a dark picture today of what this potential Russian invasion could do to Ukraine. Vladimir Putin goes for a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, America's top general laid out just how grim war could be. How disastrous could it be in your assessment? If that was unleashed on Ukraine, it would be significant, very significant, and it would result in a significant amount of casualties, uh, and, and you can imagine what that might look like in dense urban areas. Uh, along roads and so on and so forth. It would be horrific. It would be terrible. Russia's buildup increasing in just the last 48 hours, according to the Pentagon. Both the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs again warning Putin diplomacy is his best option. A move on Ukraine will accomplish the very thing Russia says it does not want. A NATO, NATO alliance strengthened and resolved on its western flank. Those comments come after a dust-up between the U.S. and Ukraine over the call Thursday between President Biden and Ukrainian President Zelensky. A senior Ukrainian official tells CNN that the call did not go well, with Zelensky calling the threat from Russia ambiguous and Biden disagreeing, saying an invasion next month is virtually certain. The White House saying that's not true. A spokesperson telling CNN President Biden said there is a distinct possibility that the Russians could invade Ukraine in February. I think you'd have to go back quite a while into the Cold War days to see something of this magnitude. Zelensky insisting a new invasion is not for sure. I'm the president of Ukraine. I'm based here and I think I know the details deeper than any other president. A diplomatic solution as uncertain as ever. 
The Russian foreign minister says he sees no room for compromise as the U.S. is rejecting the demand that no new countries be allowed to join NATO. The response is so full of itself. I feel ashamed for the people who wrote these texts. So what could be the next step? Well, 8,500 or so U.S. troops remain on a heightened state of alert and President Biden could, could put them into Europe with the agreement of those nations at any time. All right, Barbara Starr at the Pentagon for us. Thank you so much. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky today seeming to take a thinly veiled shot perhaps at President Biden. Zelensky insisting that he knows the situation facing his country better than any other world leader. CNN's Matthew Chance joins us now live from Kiev, Ukraine. And Matthew, what else did you hear from President Zelensky today about this escalating situation? Yeah, a, a whole range of, of issues addressed by President Zelensky at this press conference, this news conference for uh, members of the foreign media. He called on the United States not to create panic amid that buildup of Russian forces near his border. And he, he gave warnings. He said this before, but he did it again. Uh, warnings that this idea that the US has been putting out there that the invasion could be imminent is having a real impact on the uh, Ukrainian economy. He also set out uh, some of the things uh, that he wanted uh, Washington to do when I asked him what more could be done. In your conversations with President Biden, what are you telling him? that you need most of all from the United States that it is not doing to help you better confront and deter Russia? What are you asking for that he's not giving you? We discussed what are sanctions after the event. Now, this is a question not only for President Biden. So there are many countries who still discuss there are some preventive measures that can be introduced to make sure that there is no alleged escalation from Russia. What we mean is, there should be security guarantees. When we're talking about NATO, we should go deeper into detail. I know that some members of NATO don't like this, but we want to have something specific. We need to have something that we can count on. All right, security guarantees, sanctions, NATO. Uh, these are all the kinds of things that Ukraine has said time and again that it wants implemented before a Russian invasion. They're all things, though, that the United States has resisted or pushed back on, Jake. Uh, Matthew, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin earlier today emphasized how important it is that U.S. allies can trust America. Do you, do you get the sense that Zelensky trusts the United States? I, I think I think they want to, but I, I think they also have this this sense, and you get this from them when you speak to them privately, that they are just a small pawn in a much broader geopolitical game. And I, I think there's a suspicion in the corridors of power here that at some point they may be sold down the river for the sake of a broader agreement between the United States and Russia. Um, I mean, at the same time, the U.S. is still Ukraine's biggest friend, its biggest supporter, and there is a a kind of residual hope, I think, uh, amongst many Ukrainian officials, that the U.S. will do more before Russian tanks roll across the border. All right, Matthew Chance reporting live in Kiev. Thanks so much. Joining us to discuss, former Republican Congressman Mike Rogers. He served as the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee back when Russia invaded and annexed Crimea from Ukraine in 2014. Chairman Rogers, good to see you today. The top U.S. general warned it would be horrific if Russian forces were, quote, unleashed on Ukraine. You were chairman at the intelligence community when Russia invaded Ukraine and annexed Crimea. How likely do you think 
an invasion is? Well, it certainly doesn't look good. When they started moving up medical and logistical units, that normally means they're preparing for some kind of sustained operation. If they were going to do these lightning quick in and outs, they wouldn't need the size of the logistics uh, and, again, the medical units to treat wounded uh, following that. So, listen, I think he's setting himself up for that, and I think he's going down his calculus right now, he being Putin. What what is my tolerance for the sanctions and other things that I think will happen? It's been made very clear by NATO and the United States there will be no military action taken other than the, the weapons that we're providing to Ukraine. So he's going to go through, Jake, and say, okay, can I get half of the country up to the Dnieper River where I could have most ethnic-speaking uh, Russians on the eastern part of Ukraine and create a land bridge from Belarus to Crimea and then he would have all of the Azov Sea. So I think he's got these options that he's rolling down. And so it could be big invasion. It could be a cyber uh, disabling attack, sabotage operations, mm -hmm. a coup in Kiev, which many people believe he's preparing for at any rate. Uh, and then that unconventional military activity that you see happening now in the four regions that he does occupy in Iran, Donetsk, uh, Luhansk, Crimea, and, and Sevastopol. So he's got places in, in uh, Ukraine today. He's well surrounded the eastern portion of it. He is prepared to do it. Now I think we need to understand what, what I think he's going through. What are, my, what are my pain points if I do this? General Milley also suggested today that if war broke out, the civilian population of Ukraine would suffer immensely. For a lot of Americans, this all seems very far away. And Ukraine is not a NATO ally. And so I guess the question is, what do you tell people when they say, what does the U.S. owe Ukraine? Uh, how, can, uh, how, how much should we put on the line to prevent this? Well, I mean, obviously freedom is at stake. You have a freely elected government on the border of Europe. You have Russia moving west. You know, we've seen this movie before. Remember Czechoslovakia, remember Hungary. So, and, and people who fled that, if you talk to those folks who've come to America, they'll tell you exactly why we should stand up for freedom and liberty and then the sheer oppression that happened afterward. And so you, if you let, you know, give somebody like Putin an inch, he's gonna take a mile. Does that threaten the Baltics? He said he wanted the Baltics back. He thought that they were part of Russia. Do we just walk away from that as well? And I'm not, nobody is really suggesting military action, direct military action in Ukraine, but there are a lot of things that we can do with our allies in NATO, Poland, Romania, the folks who have a lot at risk here because they're, they would be next uh, to protect them. And remember, these destabilizing events will hurt us. Gas prices are going to go up. It's going to hurt you back home at the pump. Uh, if, if gas gets disrupted to Germany in a very significant way, about 44% of all its consumption comes from Russia in one shape or a form or yeah. another, that's, that's going to impact the economy. So that's why, I mean, freedom number one, we've got to make sure that we take totalitarianism and keep it pushed back. Uh, and then if, if that doesn't bother you, if the freedom of all those people who want to be free doesn't bug, bug you, then maybe the prices that that'll inflict on you should. Quickly, if you could, sir, uh, as you heard our correspondent reporting, President Zelensky told uh, members of the press that he thinks American and British diplomats should stay in Kiev, not flee. He compared them to ship captains who, in his view, should be the last ones to leave. Then he emphasized Ukraine is not the Titanic. Uh, what do you make of that? 
Hey, listen, he's trying to calm his country right now. And candidly, all of this uh, hair on fire rhetoric about get out right now and hair on fire probably isn't helpful for what he is trying to accomplish. And candidly, I, you know, we have other ways to exfiltrate our key personnel there if something were to happen. And I, I do think for a show of symbolism, we should stay in Kiev. We should stay engaged at the very high levels with the government there at all levels, meaning our consulate should be open, our embassies should be open uh, in a sign of solidarity. Uh, and again, he's going to continue this because he doesn't want panic throughout Ukraine. And right now, if you listen, if you're from in, you know, in the United States, we're thinking, you know, we're not exactly sure what to think of it. If you're in Ukraine right now, you're thinking, oh, my God, the tanks are coming over the border in 20 minutes. Uh, it's lost. Maybe we ought to flee, create some chaos, it creates chaos in their economy. All the things candidly that Putin is trying to do, which is cause problems in their economy, make them uh, less interesting to invest in by mm. Western government, uh, Western. Uh, and and so if you take all of that wrapped up together, you got to be careful that we're not giving Putin exactly what he wants. Former chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Mike Rogers, thanks so much. Appreciate it. What exactly is going on behind closed doors as a White House team vets potential Supreme Court picks? Well, someone who has been in the room where it happens will join me live next. Plus, breaking news, the January 6th Select Committee is expanding its targets from Trump's White House. Stay with us. In our politics lead, a partisan battle already unfolding on Capitol Hill over President Biden's future Supreme Court nominee. Democrats are using their private and public channels to express their preferences for a pick, while Republican senators led by Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell are rather prematurely warning against a pick from the, quote, radical left. Here to discuss CNN's Abby Phillip and Rakesh Kilaru, who clerked for Justice Elena Kagan and also worked in the Obama White House on the team that vetted would-be Supreme Court Justice Merrick Garland, now the Attorney General. Abby, uh, President Biden uh, promised to name a black woman. There's already a short list that we've all been reporting about. How much political pressure is Biden really under to pick one of these judges over another? A lot, <laughs> I mean, to put it shortly. But at the same time, Jake, I mean, look, they're not exactly bending Biden's arm on this. He's been pretty clear. He's going to pick a black woman. He said so uh, this week when he uh, was you know, sort of thanking uh, Justice Breyer at the White House. And I don't think there's any reason to believe that he's going to back down on that at this point after all this time. Uh, not to mention, all of those women are extremely qualified to be on the court. And I think most reasonable, rational, normal people agree that um, after, you know, 115 Supreme Court justices, just one, maybe just one, might need to be on the Supreme Court. So I don't think this is a really difficult political step for him to take. And in fact, it might actually put some Republicans in a tough spot uh, when they would have to sort of argue against this. I think many of them are already, um, you know, making clear that a lot of this, their opposition to this idea has to do with race. Uh, Rakesh, walk us through what's going on behind the scenes right now. Biden's team is starting to vet possible nominees. There's kind of like a, a list of three that we think are really the top ones. How much does political pressure play a role or do the vetters just go in and just like try to find any possible landmines, you know, just in case Biden picks any of them? It's kind of all of the above. There's an extensive vetting process that I have to think happened before this vacancy even opened up. A president always wants to be ready for a Supreme Court nomination. And so I'm sure that lawyers in the White House have taken a close look at a lot of potential candidates. What I imagine is happening right now 
is a lot of very fast moving action to try to figure out who the right person is from a political, from a legislative and from a legal perspective, in particular, making sure there's no, as you said, red flags in the background. So, Abby, uh, Congressman uh, Jim Clyburn, the House Majority Whip and the dean of the South Carolina delegation, he's publicly supporting Judge J. Michelle Childs of Uh, his home state of South Carolina. Clyburn helped put Biden in the White House by supporting him, announcing his endorsement right before the South Carolina primary. Bob Woodward reports that Clyburn endorsed Biden on three conditions, and one of those conditions was that Biden pledged to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court. So how much do you think Clyburn's influence will play in this process? Yeah, I mean, I think this is where you're going to see the political pressure. Which one of these women? And I think Clyburn's voice really is very loud in this White House. He's someone who's been a little bit of a political North Star for this president. And as you said, this was a condition. He was the one who urged President Biden to make this public pledge during the campaign at uh, at a presidential debate in his home state of South Carolina. What I think is interesting also about Judge Childs is that she, the argument for her is not just that she is Clyburn's pick, but also that she brings a, a, a sort of uh, socioeconomic and uh, geographic diversity to the court that might be lacking. She doesn't have an Ivy League degree. She's someone who, uh, you know, working class parents. Uh, th- that's the type of background that a lot of Democrats want to see, not just to diversify the court in terms of race and gender, but also in terms of uh, the overall background of these potential nominees. I've heard not only Democrats, but Republicans talk about exactly. that. Let's have fewer Ivy Leaguers uh, because that doesn't represent the country as a whole. Rakesh, how many people are in Involved in the process right now in terms of advising and picking and vetting, and what advice would you give them? Beyond the most senior folks, I have to think it's a team of like 15 to 20 people. There are lawyers who are doing the vetting, there are communication folks who will introduce the nominees to the public, and there are legislative folks who are thinking about how the nomination process will unfold. To the extent I have advice, I would say it's to move quickly. Um, Obviously, you want to make sure you've picked the right person and you want to make sure that that person is ready for the firestorm that may come their way. But there are so many pitfalls that can go wrong between nomination and confirmation. And I think speed is your friend and sort of smoothing those over. Abby, how much does getting a new justice in place before the midterms help Democrats in November? Or do you think ultimately it might not have any difference at all? You know, I think I veer a little bit more on the side of might not have much influence, partly because for Democrats, the court has not usually been a huge motivator. Now, I do think it's important uh, to voters, uh, Democratic voters, that Biden keep this promise. It's important that they that he keep most of his promises, frankly, but this is an important one. And so... Um, For Biden, it's a do-no-harm approach. You don't want to undermine your support. I think this helps him sort of stay uh, firm with black voters in particular, but it's not going to resolve all the political problems that they could face them between now and November. Um, I do think, though, that, you know, these history-making moments do matter to to black voters in particular, especially in times like this, frankly, when many of them feel like progress is stalling. So it's not for nothing, but it's not everything at the same right. time. It's right. not going to bring down prices at the pump. Thanks right. to both of you. Appreciate it. Breaking news. Another member of the Trump White House just got an invitation. It's not really an invitation you can say no to. That's next. We have some breaking news for you in our politics lead this Friday afternoon. The House Select Committee investigating the Capitol insurrection is issuing a subpoena 
The former White House Deputy Press Secretary, Judd Deere. Let's get straight to CNN's Gloria Borger with this exclusively exclusive reporting. Gloria, what does the committee think it can learn from Judd Deere? They think they can learn a lot. Uh, Judd Deere is someone the committee is interested in because he has firsthand knowledge of Donald Trump's behavior before and during the January 6th attack on the Capitol because he was there in the White House. And the letter we've obtained to Deere says that the committee has reason to believe he was involved in formulating the White House response to the attack as it occurred. But specifically, Jake, the committee is very, very interested in a January 5th staff meeting in the Oval Office with the president, which Deere reportedly attended. Now, the letter uses an account from the book Peril in which Trump listened to the crowds outside and said, there's a lot of anger out there right now. And the letter also refers to documents the committee has obtained itself, portraying the president as repeatedly asking, what are your ideas for getting the rhinos, that's Republicans in name only, to do the right thing tomorrow? How do we convince Congress? And so Deere is just the latest in a wide net of people in the Trump orbit to be subpoenaed as the committee really tries to get inside Donald Trump's state of mind. And Gloria, the, the committee also issued subpoenas today for 14 individuals <laughs> tied, right. to the, tied to this fake elector Crazy. push after the after the election. It's, it's, it's this crazy scheme. It's kind of like the gang that couldn't shoot straight, except it's very serious and very dangerous. And so they issued these 14 subpoenas for Republicans in seven states who served on bogus states of Trump electors. So they were part of this crazy plan. And let me tell you how it was supposed to work. Just in case House Republicans succeeded and didn't certify the actual electoral votes won by Joe Biden, these people were going to just step in as pro-Trump electors. Obviously, Mike Pence certified the election and the bogus certifications wound up, guess where? at the National Archives. So now the Justice Department is looking into this to see if there was any criminal wrongdoing. And that's exactly why it's so serious, all those Republicans all in the House that. that voted against certifying the election, Absolutely. because that was the plan. Gloria Borger, thanks so much. Here to discuss, Democratic Congressman Pete Aguilar of California is a member of the House Select Committee investigating the Capitol attack. Congressman, so we know that Judd Deere, the former White House Deputy Press Secretary for Trump, issued that White House statement the day after the insurrection what else do you think Deere can tell the committee? Well, I think this is important for, for three reasons. One, Judd Deere was uh, talking about a tainted election way before January 5th and January 6th. He continued to amplify that discussion. Uh, but as Gloria just mentioned, the meeting on January 5th in the Oval Office is something that we feel uh, needs to be needs to be discussed. Uh, we want to hear his thoughts, um, what his takeaways were related to that meeting, and we also think that he had a hand in formulating uh, this the strategy and some of the media discussions uh, on the day of January six and the president's response to that that oval that Rose Garden address. So those are some things that we feel are important uh, that need to be shared. Our mandate is to get to the truth, and we feel that uh, having. A conversation uh, with Mr. Deere will help us do that. Do you think Judd Deere had a hand in the strategy, the, the overall strategy of pressuring Republicans in Congress to not certify the election so that these bogus electors would come in and the whole thing would be undermined? Do you think he had a hand in that? 
Well, we know that some people in the White House did, and I think it's important to find out if he was one of those individuals um, that was having discussions and dialogue with these 14 other individuals uh, scattered across seven states or or with uh, others, uh, other members of Congress or or others involved in in this purported scheme. Uh, it's important to convey, and, and we want to be able that we're, we tell the full and complete truth when this is done. From the fact that, uh, by the fact that you're subpoenaing him, should, should we take from that that you could not get him to come in willingly? Well, this is, this is one way that we, that we operate. Uh, we have had public subpoenas. Uh, we have had uh, non-public uh, discussions with individuals, over 400 uh, total interviews that we've captured, um, but oftentimes uh, this is what's needed to take the next step, and it's to make sure that uh, we have individuals uh, telling the full and complete truth, and, and that's what we're seeking to do here. The committee also subpoenaed 14 Republicans from seven different states who served on these bogus slates of Trump electors, essentially ready to step in if House and Senate Republicans succeeded in denying the certification of the actual votes in Congress. Um, is your goal with these subpoenas of these bogus electors to find out if if Trump had a hand in the plot? Yeah, we want to know who helped strategize, who approached who. Um, we want we think that that's uh, important detail within these seven states. Was this strategy guided by uh, party operatives or was it guided by the White House? Uh, those are important questions that we have. Uh, so these are generally uh, the individuals who who signed those uh, bogus um, uh, slates of electors uh, scattered across these seven battleground states. What was the plan? What was the strategy? Uh, what, what were they told was going to happen? Uh, those are some important questions that we feel need to be discussed. Uh, something like 147 House and Senate Republicans voted against certifying the votes from Pennsylvania and Arizona, including um, all three of the top House Republicans, Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise, and Elise Stefanik. Did, do you think they knew about these bogus electors waiting in the wings? Well, we know that there were a lot of conversations, maybe not necessarily with those three uh, of my colleagues, but with other Republican members of Congress. Uh, we know through public reporting that they were having discussions with rally organizers and, and those who attended the rally and, and those who helped strategize these these plans. Uh, so we think that those are all important details uh, to our investigation, and, and we want to make sure that we're asking all those questions and, and uncovering uh, every stone that we possibly can in order to in order to get to the truth. A source tells CNN that a former top aide to Mark Meadows, the former White House chief of staff, a guy named Ben Williamson, answered the committee's questions this week for nearly seven hours. He did not plead the fifth. Former White House communications director Alyssa Farrah tells CNN that she texted Williamson during the riot saying, quote, is someone getting to POTUS? He has to tell protesters to dissipate. Someone is going to get killed. To which Williamson responded, I've been trying for the last 30 minutes, literally stormed in outer oval to get him to put out the first one. It's completely insane. How important is his testimony, given that Mark Meadows has stopped cooperating? You know, I can't talk about any any specific or individual um, interview that we've had, but I can tell you overall, we continue to learn important facts about that day. What was the president doing? Um, how many people uh, attempted to try to get him to intervene? But more importantly, 
uh, why didn't he walk over to the press room uh, that's, you know, 25, 30 feet away uh, from his study? Uh, why didn't he make an address to tell these individuals to leave the Capitol, to tell these insurrectionists uh, that, that, they, that they did not have his support? Um, those are important facts. In 187 minutes, he just he just stayed there. So what happened during that time is of interest to us. And so we are talking to individuals uh, who were in and around the White House uh, that day, and, and they have shed some light on some of those details that we will share when it's appropriate. Democratic Congressman Pete Aguilar, thank you so much. Appreciate it, sir. The tip line that is dividing parents and lawmakers in one state. Stay with us. Internationally today, putting a complaint in the suggestion box does not usually yield any results. In Virginia, however, it might be a different story. Two weeks into his term, Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin, who rode the discontent of parents with teachers and schools all the way to the governor's mansion, is now offering a tip line where parents can directly email the governor's office to complain about forced masking or any, quote, divisive subjects. As CNN's Eva McKend reports, It's a move that has prompted some backlash. We will remove politics from the classroom and refocus on essential. Virginia's Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin, starting the job, focusing on a key promise. We're going to embrace our parents, not ignore them. Youngkin made what he called parents' rights, a cornerstone of his bid for governor, issuing several executive orders his first day in office, including one banning critical race theory from being part of the public school curriculum, despite not being included in Virginia's standards of learning. I will ban critical race theory. The 74th governor announced a tip line this week for parents to email reports of so-called divisive concepts if they are taught in the classroom. It gives us a a great insight into what's happening uh, at the school level, and that gives us further, further ability to make sure that we're rooting it out. Democratic delegate Marcus Simon slamming Youngkin's policy. It does sound like the kind of thing that authoritarian regimes around the world do. It's ironic that the Party of Freedom is, is really trying to restrict uh, the, the, the kind of ideas that can be taught in Virginia's classrooms. Critics have pointed to the fact that he sent his children to private schools in Washington, D.C., St. Albans, and National Cathedral, where anti-racism education was adopted as part of the strategic plan. According to Cathedral's website, Youngkin served on the governing board from 2016 to 2019. Youngkin's spokeswoman, Macaulay Porter, telling CNN Youngkin stepped off the board after 2019 and that both schools changed a lot over the years. St. Albans, for instance, touts books like Critical Race Theory, an introduction on their diversity, equity, and inclusion resource page, and Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist as part of a training session for teachers. Suparna Dutta, who appeared for Youngkin in this campaign video, supports the tip line and pulled her son out of Fairfax schools last year in objection to how the impact of racism was being discussed. Immigrants value education a lot and um, parents, you know, spend money to feed, clothe and educate their children. And if they don't get the services they want or they need, they should be able to complain and air their grievances. What was your reaction when you heard about this tip line? Immediately, my first thought was, it's divisive. Dominique Chatters has four children in Chesterfield County Public Schools. She fears this reporting mechanism will lead to teachers watering down lessons about slavery out of fear. It's an intimidation tactic, absolutely. I think that it'll give them pause, especially our newer teachers. 
just starting out, not knowing how to navigate the classroom. Though this tip email address has drawn considerable attention around the country, with people decrying it as essentially a tell on a teacher tip line, the governor's office views this as a standard way to get feedback. The tip email is getting clogged with spam and memes. There's also concern this all could lead educators who are already drained from this pandemic heading for the exits. Jake. All right, Eva McCann, thank you so much. Appreciate it. It seems it's no longer about safety. CNN visits one small town where people say getting stopped by police feels more like a shakedown. Stay with us. Topping our national lead, a black hole. That's how some drivers are describing a small Alabama town. They say in Brookside, not far from Birmingham, Police officers use racial profiling to pull them over for bogus reasons, and they then rake in huge sums of money, seizing the assets of those drivers. And as CNN's Nick Valencia reports for us now, the top cop suddenly resigned this week, just as state authorities stepped in to investigate. Less than 30 minutes north of Birmingham sits the small town of Brookside, Alabama. It's a former mining town with no stoplights no retail stores other than the Dollar General, and no major crimes. A stretch of Interstate 22 runs directly through Brookside, and the town has a lot of cops to police it. Brookside is only about three miles long and has just over 1,200 residents. But the police here, they feel the need for at least three SWAT vehicles. Not only that, they also have a tank, which looks brand new. According to the local media outlet AL.com, between 2018 and 2020, under Brookside Police Chief Mike Jones, income from fees and forfeitures increased by 640%. The outlet says the money amounts to half of the town's total income, or roughly $1.2 million. So that you feel like they tried to ruin your name? Yes, they did. They did. Pastor Vincent Witt says he is one of the countless victims of Brookside's alleged policing for profit. In 2019, he says he was unjustly pulled over for having temporary plates on his brand new car. He's filed a federal lawsuit against the town of Brookside for defamation of character and filing false charges. They're policing for revenue. They're pulling people over for bogus charges. 24-year-old college student Jory Jones said her interaction with Brookside police felt like a shakedown. After being pulled over for driving without her lights just before dusk, Jones says her car was impounded and she was left stranded on the side of the road. Jones's attorney says she will also sue the police department. Even though I was pulled over, I was following the laws of the road. The Jefferson County Sheriff's Office says for years there's been a slew of complaints against the Brookside Police Department. This week, Police Chief Mike Jones suddenly resigned. Hey there, uh, my name is Nick Valencia. We went to Brookside to try to talk to who's in charge now. So the the town of Brookside does not have a current police chief. But we're told they didn't have a new chief. No comment. The Brookside police then gave us this statement. This will confirm that Mike Jones resigned as the police chief for the town of Brookside. Since this involves a personnel matter, the town has no further comment. Brookside's mayor was in the office, but he declined our request for an interview. Responding to the allegations of predatory policing, he handed us this statement, in part saying, 
to investigate and address the issues raised by recent news accounts of our police department, the town of Brookside requested the Alabama Peace Officers Standards and Training Commission perform a compliance audit of the Brookside Police Department and officers. The town continues to investigate these issues and will take any other appropriate action that may be determined necessary. Leah Nelson with the social justice nonprofit Alabama Appleseed says Alabama doesn't generate enough revenue from taxation. So public policy incentivizes cities and counties to get that revenue another way. And the path of least resistance is very often ticketing people for low-level offenses. Brookside residents wonder if these old tactics will continue under a new chief. I hope not. CNN tried repeatedly to get in touch with former police chief Mike Jones, but he never returned our calls. The town still doesn't have a police chief. But the mayor says that he's directed the police to stop patrolling the interstate unless it's to respond to accidents. He added that he met with the office of lieutenant governor and he's fully cooperating. Jake. Nick Valencia, thanks so much for that report. Appreciate it. Those Alabama drivers are not alone. According to a report from UNC Chapel Hill, black drivers in America are twice as likely as white drivers to be pulled over and four times more likely to be searched. In a new documentary, CNN's Sarah Seidner reports on the increasing danger of traffic stops in America and how some critics are demanding reform. Ending stops that don't reduce crime but do cause trauma and increase distrust of police is the goal of a brand new law in Philadelphia. I'm extremely excited to be able to introduce this ordinance today. In June, freshman city councilman Isaiah Thomas introduced a bill that turns a handful of traffic infractions like minor bumper damage or items hanging from a rear view mirror into secondary violations, which means a driver cannot be stopped for them alone. I've been stopped in the city of Philadelphia more times than I can remember. Um, I'm well over 20 times. He says one of the most humiliating happened here as a recent college grad. We are in the northwest section of Philadelphia. So I remember the officer saying, you know, you look guilty, get out the car. And they never talked about a traffic violation. So they searched me. And, and I think that's the part that kind of gets dismissed is when they search us, right? It's a very aggressive church. So they check in between your butt cheeks. They're checking you know, underneath your testicles and they're seeing if you have drugs there. And then they put me in handcuffs and they put me in the back of the car. Then they searched the entire car looking for guns and drugs. Somebody called in for another crime and they ended up letting me out of the car and just speeding off. Mind you, I'm a working man with a college degree who didn't do anything wrong. I mean, what it does to your pride and your self-esteem in the moment, like you just can't get that back. His experiences and the experiences of his friends led him to push for the driving equality bill, which passed in November and goes into effect in early 2022. We're looking at hopefully around 100,000 less traffic stops a year. That's important to Thomas because he says those stops take a large toll on black drivers with a very small, nearly non-existent return for the city. We know that in the city of Philadelphia, less than 1% of the time in a year where we examine over 300,000 motor vehicle code stops, less than 1% of the time did that stop and that search lead to some type of um, contraband or an illegal weapon. That figure comes from the Defender Association in Philadelphia, a city dealing with a rise in violent crime. 
So what do police think of this? We were able to sit down with the police commissioner, the first, by the way, black woman to head the Philadelphia Police Department. And she said, look, we had a little bit of say in how to shape this particular bill that has passed and our officers will follow it when it goes into effect in the next few weeks. But the law is being put into place at one of the worst times. As you know, Jake, I know Philly is your hometown. Her city has experienced the worst homicide rate ever in its history. And this may be taking away a tool. And that's what she's worried about. Jake. Sarah Sanger looks great. Thank you so much. Don't miss Sarah's special report this weekend as she rides along to find out why driving while black in America can be deadly serious. The new CNN special report traffic stop Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern. A rural town in Georgia, an understated historical marker, baseball legend Jackie Robinson and a violent attack. That story next. Now our buried lead stories we feel are not getting enough attention. A new marker was unveiled today at the place where baseball legend and civil rights pioneer Jackie Robinson was born 103 years ago this coming Monday. The marker is where Robinson's first home once stood, near Cairo, Georgia. The original marker, put up in 2001, was shot up by a cowardly vandal with a shotgun in February of last year. The people responsible were never identified, but the Georgia Historical Society told CNN they have seen an increase in attacks on markers celebrating black Americans. In 2020, a plaque honoring Mary Turner, a pregnant black woman who was lynched, killed for decrying her husband's lynching in 1918, was also hit by gunfire. That marker was replaced in December. The public unveiling for the new Jackie Robinson marker was earlier today. According to the New York Times, Major League Baseball donated $40,000 for the new sign and a second sign at a local library uh, directing people to Robinson's birthplace in Cairo. Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in 1947 when he became the first black American to play in the major leagues in the 20th century. This Sunday on CNN State of the Union, my colleague Dana Bash talks to the top two senators on the Foreign Relations Committee, Democratic Chairman Bob Menendez and Republican James Risch, plus New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu. That's at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Have a great weekend. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.